Hello and welcome to uh, the weekly Rethink Energy podcast with me, Peter White, uh, my colleagues, Andres uh, Wontanar and Harry Morgan and Simon Thompson, where we discuss the issues of the week and see if we can put the world to rights. Um, I think the first thing we're going to be talking about is um, what's going on between Oxford PV, uh, one of the self-styled leaders of the Perovskite revolution, and Mayer Berger, a German company who helped them by uh, providing sort of heterojunction know-how, and they make equipment to uh, build the silicon part of the line. Oxford PV are, are doing a tandem line and need a, a kind of perovskite depositor to complete the line so that uh, each cell has got uh, both a perovskite layer and a silicon layer. Um, and they've suddenly fallen out. I just got off the phone to um, uh, Mayor Berger, who, um, are, who are very baffled by this because they have a guy who sits on the board uh, and they say, well, it didn't come up in a board discussion. They could have told him there and then, we don't want to work with you anymore. But instead, they've got some kind of note and a press release and they've issued their own press statement saying we're seeking legal advice. This really goes back a year to when Mayor Berger, who who uh, had a um, an activist shareholder say, look, your business relies 80% on Chinese companies. You're selling equipment to make uh, solar cells to Chinese companies and they're going to start competing with you and you'll end up not being able to sell anything and you'll be taken out of the market. You need to change strategy. And on that... I think the Chinese are learning how to build it for themselves. As as, as they always do. And uh, why shouldn't they? You know, it's a complete infrastructure. Then they they're not reliant on the foreign supplier. And so that say so they uh, the CEO and chairman uh, executive chairman resigned or or were pushed out. And as a result, they uh, they did a change in strategy around um, a design they have for heterojunction um, cells, which according to Fraunhofer are something like they have a three-year global lead over anybody. Yeah, Fraunhofer is, of course, German and, and works with them, so I'm not sure. Can I ask, how, how important is this for the solar industry in general? Everyone's trying to grab the future of the solar industry, and this is a war for the future of the solar industry. Which way are we going to go? It, it's a saturated perk market. Everybody knows how to make perk. It's not dense enough to provide any huge throughput changes in electricity. The, the whole... Um, a silicon only market is probably not dense enough you need multiple layers and and you need to know how to merge the uh, electricity on the uh, either on the uh, chip uh, or or separately uh, i.e provide multiple layers of electricity and get it to the outside of the uh, module perovskite has been uh, the gleaming white hope because it, it operates or can be made to operate in a completely different set of waveforms uh, of light from uh, silicon so that if you have silicon and perovskite together it's like they both can collect light different parts of the light spectrum and double the amount of energy you can produce from a panel and that's what Oxford TV was working on with Mayer Berger. Mayer Berger bringing its heterojunction technology to bear and, and Oxford PV bringing its uh, perovskite intellectual property which is considerable. So that it seemed a perfect marriage. Why aren't they merging? Instead of getting divorced, why aren't they getting married? So, so I mean, the, the timing of this seems quite weird as well, because I, I was reading earlier that Oxford, uh, Oxford PV have literally just finished the fitting out of their 100 megawatt tandem cell line in Germany, which I assume has something to do with Meyerberger through the construction. I mean, OK, well, so so number one, it's not 100 megawatt. It's 100 megawatt on the silicon side. 
and another 150 on the perovskite side. So it, it becomes a 250 megawatt production line when complete. What they seem to have is the silicon side. For, I, I looked that up again. I looked back to my original interview with, uh, with the CEO of, of Oxford PV, and he's very clear on that point. It's a 250 megawatt production line, the first of which is they brought in a Mayerberger machine to do the 100 megawatt of the silicon. And, uh, and they uh, are waiting for a, a perovskite depositor to lay this, the perovskite layer on. However, uh, Mayor Berger is fairly open with me on the phone just now and said they haven't got all of our technology yet. We will not provide it. They cannot finish this production line. I think uh, Oxford PV, which is very impressive, um, probably is the global leader, at least in the West for certain in perovskites. Yeah, the global leader takes a gun and points it to his own head. I mean, it's we see it all the time. I know that I'm going to be the global leader forever, so I'm going to fight off everybody over these intellectual property challenges. I don't want to share it with anybody um, because I, I don't want my advantage stolen away from me. And as a result, they ruin any opportunity they had. I think they've delayed it before as well. And, and there's still... I think I wrote a recent article on this. There's still a technological hurdle still to be overcome in perovskites, which is um, which is just spreading them out on a large scale without getting all sorts of deformities in the in this uh, very thin film. So maybe they're still struggling with that as well. I don't think they're struggling with that. I you think this, this is politics. I think this is if you're struggling with that, you don't kick out your partner. Oh, I see. You know, yeah, I was thinking if yeah, you've yeah. solved that. And you realise that you're going to. So this is where you start to look for conspiracies. Well, I mean, everybody will look at this and go, how big is the market? Oh, we've got that report from Rethink Energy. So it's going to be billions of dollars. OK, the market. OK, and what are we going to get market share? Well, at the moment, we're, we're going to get 100 percent of market share. Oh, but these people are saying they want the rights to our into their property as well. What's going on here? Yeah, and suddenly everyone's inward looking and worried that they're having their advantage stolen away. That's typically what happens. I'm not saying that we know that's happening here. I'm suggesting that perhaps a shareholder here or a shareholder there is planting the seed, getting paranoid, and they're not talking as they should do about cooperation, and they're going to go their separate ways. And we probably made it clear already, but like you say in the article, when this partnership was formed, Meyerberger was just a technology and equipment provider, and now it's becoming a manufacturer in its own right as well. So specifically of a type of silicon that I think is very convenient, very suitable for tandem perovskites. So that yeah, makes I, them a competitor, yeah. It makes them a direct competitor. Yeah. And, and But the thing is, the tanding process is, is the area where Meyerberger are expert. Oxford PB are not expert in that. They're only expert in the, in the perovskite. Now, they also imply that they've, they've had open access to the Proxite technology for the last couple of years. But they could build a, they could build a production line tomorrow. You know, they're saying, no, we're not saying we're doing it. We're just simply saying we're baffled. Come and talk to us. So if anyone from Oxford PV is listening, and you should be, pick up the phone because they don't understand what they've done wrong. And I know you're talking through lawyers and you must ask yourself, question the motive of the people inside Oxford PV who are saying we should talk through lawyers because it won't work. It never works. Technology doesn't work by deliberately 
putting yourself uh, in opposition to a partner. Technology works by cooperation. If you look at the spread of the perovskite technology around the world, 20,000 researchers all doing Beaver and Wayne labs in university. And NREL, first interviewed them on the subject of perovskite, their perovskite leader, he said, Oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, we've got people who've worked in that lab with him, that lab with him. This stuff is it's an open secret. There's nothing, you know, it's no big intellectual property thing you can save. Now, that may be slightly overstating the case, but uh, fundamentally, if it comes out of academia, it leaks like a sieve. I think these are the two major Western perovskite tandem manufacturers. Do you think they're getting too complacent and just thinking that they're the ones that matter and they're kind of forgetting about the Chinese? Because yeah. I think the Chinese are a bit behind, but they've got scale and they're they're doing it for perovskites. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, you know, you just, yeah. I think absolutely. they're forgetting about them because it's all behind the a job. language barrier. Apply for the job that will soon be going, Oxford PVCO. <laughs> and you can read more about that at rethinkresearch.biz slash energy. The second article of the of the day was uh, Harry doing his usual. I mean, Harry's articles on oil companies are, are great to read, uh, but they always have this underlying element of picture of man, Homer Simpson, banging his head and saying dull, which I referred to in a later headline, where the oil company just keeps putting money into oil. And as the oil price comes up, they go, oh, perhaps we can forget about global warming. Let's just give the money to the shareholders so they increase the share price and make my shares worth more. And they keep forgetting what they're doing. Harry, you, you talk about Shell today. Uh, yeah, no, it was a very frustrating write. It does feel like as a child at a fun fair, just saying, oh, just one more go, one more go. Because these oil companies, <laughs> basically, they're, what, we've, what we've seen this week is the start of the financial season, which... Over the past year has obviously been pretty dismal for the oil companies um, and Shell have come out first this time around with a profit of, I think, $5.5 billion, which is their largest in since 2018. The problem with that is that what they're doing with the proceeds from these profits is either both raising dividends and buying back shares for the company rather than actually investing in the low carbon technologies that they've said they're going to. Over the next five years, we can only really see around 15% of their capital actually going towards these clean technologies. So it, while they're enjoying the sort of high prices of oil at the moment, uh, which you could use as an ex- you should use as an excuse to put aside money for the future. What they're doing instead is they think saying, "Oh, we'll keep our shareholders on board and we'll keep going with oil for as long as we can." Now, I want to remind you of uh, Mary Isabara at, um, at General Motors, who six months before she gave the shock announcement, "We're going to be out of internal combustion engine motors by 2035." She said. Oh, I can't see electric vehicles taking off, really, not for at least 20 years. So this is a case, I suspect, of people saying what they know they believe their shareholders want to hear, but doing something different underneath the bonnet. And I think you've, you've guessed it right, that the timing of the sale of their Permian assets makes the difference between bringing in $3 billion and $10 billion. And what they can't be held to say is, oh, the oil market's dead. Oh, in which case you won't mind selling your Permian assets for almost nothing. They want to be saying, oh, look, you know, we're we're increasing our dividends. Things are going back back to normal again. This is great because then they can convince someone to pay over the dollars for their American assets. The the thing that you can't do with a strategy like that is once you start spending heavily on renewables, you can't stop. You can keep it off the public statement. You can still you can be preparing lots and lots and lots of deals in renewables, but don't 
mention any of them, don't sign any of them and don't advertise any of them. But once you shift more than a billion dollars into renewables, and you start putting threes, fours and fives because you've sold oil assets. It, this this rules only works for a short period. But I, I, I can't believe the way you've put it is they don't know that <laughs> what's going to happen to them. I can't believe they're that stupid. No, I mean, I think that's that's a very optimistic way of looking. I think that's it's true that that could be a way of keeping oil investors on board while actually sort of changing the things inside. It's actually very difficult when you look at Shell's financial figures to work out exactly how much they're spending on renewables. And we have seen over the past few weeks, we've seen them signing deals for things like the Scott Wind leasing, um, leasing round. So it, it could be something that's very much happening behind closed doors. Generally, it's, it's, it's very interesting seeing Shell's outlook at the moment because obviously they've had this this period over the past six months where they've faced court cases in the Netherlands around um, around their decarbonisation. They've recently come out with this 45% reduction in emissions by 2030 promise. So things seem to be moving in the right direction, but they do. it is very interesting seeing how they're keeping it behind closed doors. It looks to me like you can't fight a Dutch court. I, I don't see them wanting to fight it. I think in the end, that, that's, that's a concrete fact and you can live by that and they will deliver on that. But they can posture in any direction they like. And you can you can read more about the oil industry if you are the oil industry at RethinkResearch.biz because clearly uh, you need some help. The next one was the Dole Palm to the Forehead Award that goes to Bloomberg. They've Finally. doubled their forecast for, for the number of EVs. So I think this is a matter of Bloomberg, which keeps boasting that they've got 65 economists. Um, maybe there's 65 Maybe they're 10 teams of six economists who don't talk to one another. And maybe the EV team who increased their EV projection considerably in May doesn't talk to the team who issues the new energy outlook, who have gone twice the number again come um, July. Um, Maybe it's factions. Maybe none of them know what they're doing but worse still they don't know what each other are doing and this is the best analyst group apart from us out there everyone else has got the numbers even more wrong when you're a big company it is hard to say we can only have one opinion and you have uh, all the efforts pointing up towards an executive who says i actually like this argument best we're going with this one and then everyone swallows that argument and tells their clients that argument instead of going back downstairs saying to their clients that oh, I think he's wrong and then another another guy going to his clients I know he's right if you're an analysis group you've got to have one opinion it's collective got we've got to be achieved collectively and it's got to be delivered consistently if you're wrong you hold your hand up and say no it's going to be bigger than that or in our case you know if you make a stab at how many EVs are going to be in 2050 and then someone changes the laws, you could say, oh, it's reasonable to recalculate. Again, it's going to be there a bit faster. But you don't say, no, we've just thought about it a bit more. Or the international energy agencies come out with really high numbers, and you know what? I think they're right. Or, or Rethink has come out with really high numbers, and we've never heard of them, so we can copy their numbers. You don't do that. You, you have to think about your topic. And you have to be loyal and consistent to your customers. I think it's appalling. But their numbers are 1.4 billion EVs on the road by 2040. And this changes every six months. They can't take it backwards. <laughs> it was 450 million by 2040, the first time I read it. 
about two years ago. It just jumped to 540 million and now it's gone to 1.4 billion. And they've given themselves three scenarios in the outlook model. Yeah. So, so set, only, set three separate guesses. That's that's it's great, isn't it? So which guess should, should which guess do you identify with? Well, I'm an oil company. I go I go with the business as usual one. Oh well, that's much lower. Yeah, it's like you, the it's like the solar forecast for this year where they said it would be 155 to 209 gigawatts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this um, the next uh, chess piece will be black or white. Yeah, it, I mean, it does appear to be the culture of forecasting in this industry, though. I mean, we've seen it with the IEA. It's been, I think it's something like 12 years on the trot now that they've updated their solar expectations sort of year on year. They It always seems to be the things that do accelerate. They overpredict and things that basically business as usual, they, uh, they overpredict. So they'll end up saying things like carbon capture is going to take off when it doesn't. Um, and it, it just appears to be, and also, again, with the with the number of different scenarios they put in place, it just seems to be a way of having three different ways of so three different guesses um, at being right. So, I mean, it's it's one of the probably the most frustrating things I've found when actually reading these forecasts is just the scope for error that is just unbelievable. The thing that, that, that annoyed me as well was the throwaway at the bottom that said, oh, you know, it's going to be um, much quicker in residential and commercial buildings. Not a problem. But, you know, uh, sectors like aviation, steel and cement will go the slowest because they're hard. But the steel industry is trying the hardest segments of the aviation industry are going to hit 2035 the first time they fly uh, uh, wide-bodied um, hydrogen planes. They're already on it, and cement so cement is on it. They've got about five experiments work coming at it from different angles, and one of them will be cheap and available, and it will be worked into the system. So they're saying the last to decarbonize are these industries, but they haven't spoken to them. Because if they had, they'd know that they've been thinking about this for three or four years and they have a plan. 